You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. I'm your co-host, Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. How's it going this week, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. It's, it's good to be back as always. And um, we'll be devoting this week's episode to the Indian Ocean, um, which has been particularly hot lately, but um, a, a warm topic of great interest to us at The Diplomat for the past few years. Um, and indeed, uh, regional observers in, in South Asia have been paying quite a bit of attention to geopolitical dynamics in the Indian Ocean region. It is certainly turning out to be one of the more contested maritime spaces in the uh, Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific, whatever you want to call it. Um, we actually um, just happened to have run a, uh, a great feature article for listeners that might not keep up with Indi Indian Ocean Affairs, uh, written by David Brewster, who's a scholar that actually um, works on this quite closely. And uh, he has a great rundown of the changing geopolitical dynamics in the region. So if you find yourself a little bit lost by some of the things we're talking about on this podcast, that might be a good resource to refer to. Um, so Prashant, I mean, there's a few things on the agenda today, right? So we'll talk a bit about the uh, crisis in the Maldives, um, and that might sound like a uh, a small issue in a small country, but it's actually not. And we'll uh, we'll get a bit of that in the course of the discussion, I hope. Um, but then we can zoom out a bit and talk a bit about um, basically this this network um, networking that's going on around the Indian Ocean littoral and both in the Indian Ocean itself with uh, various island states like the Maldives and Sri Lanka, Mauritius. Uh, to a lesser extent, um, the Seychelles as well. Um, there is this game underway between India and China. Um, Indian strategists have been worried about a so-called string of pearls for some time now. That phrase actually comes from a uh, mid-2000s report by none other than Booz Allen Hamilton. So, uh, But it has it has stuck in the Indian strategic imagination that uh, India is being encircled by by a range of Chinese ports everywhere from Gwadar in Pakistan to uh, ports in Myanmar, Sri Lanka, um, and China's first overseas military base in Djibouti. Um, so there is there is something to this, um, certainly. Um, and uh, and then we can reflect a bit on the uh, Indo-Pacific concept, which I think we've been talking about a lot on these podcasts, but certainly the, uh, the first half of that phrase, Indo, very much brings the Indian Ocean region into the strategic imagination of um, of not only India but uh, its its like-minded partners, including the United States, Australia, and Japan, certainly, and to a lesser extent, countries like Indonesia. Um, great. So, uh, where should we start? I think we we can probably start with uh, the Maldives um, because that's been and, and I guess still continues to be the the sort of major source of international headlines. Um, and I guess the the sort of initial framing consideration is um, on February fifth. The government of President Abdullah Yameen announced this, you know, 15-day state of emergency, which really thrust the Maldives, which isn't usually in, in in the international spotlight or limelight beyond, you know, us who, those of us who follow it, pretty closely. Um, and that state of emergency was extended um, last week by another 30 days. And this, you know, it was really a case of things boiling over um, following. A real deterioration in, in rule of law since Yameen came to power. Really, I mean, back in 2013, all the way back there, when we've seen a crackdown on opposition voices, um, including former President Nasheed. Um, and meanwhile, I guess under that state of emergency, where this fits into our, our broader geopolitical uh, conversation, is that there have been calls by uh, members of the opposition, but also some voices within India for. Uh, India to, to intervene in some way. Some of this harks back to previous instances of 
where India has intervened in one way or the other, the, the most, the clearest demonstration of that being military intervention back in 19, 1988, and also this conversation about Chinese inroads into India and the neighborhood. And so I guess one useful place to, to start the conversation on, on Maldives is to sort of look at what India's options are here, how it's played its hand so far, and, and how we see that moving forward. Uh, I think the, the, the two uh, ends of the spectrum that have been presented is, you know, on, on the one hand, India sitting by and seeing, you know, Chinese inroads in its neighborhood, including in the Maldives. We've seen, you know, the signing of a free trade agreement between, you know, China and the Maldives, which took some people by surprise, but it was really, you know, a latest step in, in a series of moves that we've seen China take with respect to the Maldives. And then, you know, the other end of the spectrum, which is, you know, India taking a more active interventionist role. But I guess the the thing that'll be interesting for us to explore here is, you know, what is the end game for India here, right? So India's problem in the Maldives seems to be it, it's not one of an individual leader. It's governments, you know, even democratically elected ones in, in within South Asia and beyond, right? They're increasing their economic links with China that India perceives to be undermining its own strategic interests. You know, India had problems with President Nasheed as well and Yameen uh, today continually. So, I mean, wh what are your thoughts about uh, India's options with respect to Maldives and how do you see India playing its hand moving forward? Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for framing um, that very well, Prashant. I think, um, you know, you're right that India um, has been put in a bit of a pickle here uh, with the situation in the Maldives. Um, and the main reason for that is that um, no matter what India does, India makes a choice that will have important implications for this broader geopolitical game in the Indian Ocean. Uh, doing nothing uh, and letting this crisis play out in itself is a dramatic option for India. And that makes things quite difficult. So, um, yeah, so intervention is certainly... Um, or has been certainly at the top of the conversation among sort of strategic elites in New Delhi. Um, you know, a lot of them will point to um, India's successful power projection in the past in the Indian Ocean. In 1988, India, uh, the Indian Navy um, basically saved um, Mamun Gayum, who was uh, the autocratic ruler of the Maldives for 30 years, from a coup attempt by mercenaries by by uh, dispatching troops on his request. Uh, the, it was called Operation Cactus. It was it was broadly successful. It won India quite some goodwill um, in the Maldives. Um, and actually, uh, Mamun is uh, Yamin's half brother, and he's he's currently still active in um, in Maldivian politics. Um, but you know, this isn't 1988, um, and not only that, this is not a case where the sitting president is requesting Indian assistance. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, I think the government would like to see India stay out. Um, the opposition, meanwhile, um, most prominently Mohammad Nasheed, uh, who has a complicated relationship with India, but um, but right now New Delhi has um, he is getting quite some airtime. Um, there was a bit of a controversy recently because I think he implied he had some conversations with India's defense minister that he didn't um, actually have in the in the way that he presented it. I think he said that he he briefed the Indian defense minister, which put India in a bit of a pickle um, again. But um, he is very vocally um, calling for India to play a role in in restoring uh, democratic normalcy. And this has been a, a long time uh, refrain for him. He received um, medical leave to go into exile in um in London, he's actually been splitting his time between the UK and Sri Lanka. Um, but right now, it seems like India is not quite ready to dispatch its military to intervene. Um, not only because, um, you know, like I said, this is uh, this would be an intervention against the will of a sitting government. Um, and, you know, we can talk about the legitimacy of, of Yemen's government at this point. But the fact remains that um, it would not be a 
a uniformly popular move for India to do this in, in the Indian Ocean region. And obviously other, other Indian neighbors are watching as well. Um, listeners may be w- aware that India's neighborhood is a complicated place. India has has you know seen relationships wax and wane, um, and you know there are strategic comment, uh, commentators in New Delhi who have just been pointing to the fact that you know this is what happens when you have a uh, a neighborhood like India does. I mean, governments come and go, um, friendships wax and wane, um, interests are eternal for India, but the relationships that it has with specific governments in South Asia and in the Indian Ocean will change with due time. I mean, um, India saw this in Sri Lanka when uh, Rajapaksa left and Siri Sena came to office. Um, with a more balanced approach to Sri Lankan foreign policy. It has seen um, ebbs and flows in Nepal uh, that we've talked about on this podcast, uh, currently now in, a, in another period of an ebb with a KP Oli back on top. But I think a lot of that, um, you know, when it comes to specifically the question of what to do in the Maldives, there are, you know, various shades of gray. It's not a, it's not a decision between military intervention and doing nothing. There are several intermediary steps. And right now, India has been playing its cards close to its chest. There's been a lot of um, it appears that anything that India is doing right now is very much being kept in the dark, occurring behind the scenes. Um, the extension of the state of the emergency, I think, um, again, sends a message to New, to New Delhi that Yameen is not sensitive to uh, Indian requests here. Um, he's, uh, you know, also dispatched diplomats to China. Um, and for India, I think, you know, the long term outcome in the Maldives, you know, thinking maybe t- 10, 20 years down the line, is to see this country uh, still have some possibility to return to India's sphere of influence, or or at least not become a, a sort of Chinese outpost in the Indian Ocean. Um, and I think, you know, India recognizes, uh, like you pointed out, that all of these Indian Ocean countries have their own national interests, their own self-interest to look out for, and they will find attractive sources of capital in China. And it's very difficult to say no to that. Sri Lanka, I think, has seen the dark side of that with uh, some of the debt traps that it's experienced with uh, various projects like the Hamantura port project. Um, and the Maldives um, hasn't quite had that experience yet with, with China, but it may do so in due time. And you may see more domestic opposition to Chinese involvement in the country. And India does have a long history in the Maldives. There are close cultural ties there as well that um, may have um, benefits for New Delhi in the future. So India is really in a, uh, in a difficult position. Um, it's difficult to know um, how India will behave in the, in the coming weeks. Military intervention, again, I should point out, obviously, uh, you never know, you know, it's it's easier said than done, um, especially in this context. Once you intervene, what do you do after that? Um, how do you, you know, remove Yamin from power, potentially bring Nasheed back? How does that affect the polarized situation on the ground? Um, there are all these questions that uh, India would have to have very good answers to, to justify military intervention. And of course, you know, we can talk about the international legal rationale, which will probably not be forthcoming, at least from the UN Security Council, given that China can simply veto any any Indian action there. So uh, India would pr- presumably have to act without international legitimacy as well. And that, of course, has costs for India's interests elsewhere. Uh, India is, is quite sensitive to appearing like anything like a pariah state. Um, so um, I think anything that India would do, it would want to do with international legal sanction, or if not that, then wider sanction from a, a range of countries, presumably the United States, um, Japan, um, but I just simply don't see the diplomacy going in that direction right now. Yeah, I think you know, the way you framed it is definitely interesting and something to watch because you're already seeing with, with the extension of, of the state of emergency, India, the U.S., and a number of other countries saying that you know they, they hope that this doesn't continue and indications that there could be certain steps that are taken that are you know to the effect of economic sanctions uh, in addition to moves that have already been taken including travel advisories and, and so th- this may be something that's only beginning 
in the in the Maldives, and so it, it really will be interesting to see how that plays out. I, I, I do think you know since you know this is a geopolitics podcast, the other development that was interesting that occurred alongside this that gives a sense to the strategic weight of, of the Maldives in this broader conversation is the fact that we saw this the, the, these news developments, I think initially a Reuters report, but also some other places as well, saying that we had a, the, the Chinese Navy moving into the eastern Indian Ocean um, and subsequent clarification uh, by the Indians that you know it actually was transiting through the Sunda Strait, exiting through the, the Lombok Strait. Um, and essentially, you know, the, the conversation then evolved uh, into whether this was something that had happened independent of what happened in the Maldives or whether China was trying to send some kind of signal to India in the Maldives. So that that's something I think that was, uh, I think, irrespective of what, what it actually was, it did seem to me that um, it was an indicator of, of how uh, domestic political developments in, in a very small country in South Asia can then uh, radiate into this broader strategic uh, dynamics, which some people would argue is maybe a good thing in terms of framing uh, India's foreign policy, but it can all it can also result in you know you um, inflating uh, threat perceptions that otherwise you know should be kept on 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 a level here in terms mm-hmm. of not considering uh, foreign policy options that are that are way out there, including <laughs> including military intervention. Yeah. Um, but you you wrote about this. Uh, deployment specifically and 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 mentioned you know the implications there and, and offered a cautionary word maybe we can say a word about that yeah absolutely i mean um look i mean one thing we haven't mentioned is that all of this is also playing out in the aftermath of the doklam standoff last year which was an incredibly significant episode in india china bilateral ties um has left quite a bit of mistrust in india of chinese intentions mm-hmm. certainly uh india is watching chinese movements in the himalayas and the indian ocean more closely than ever um, so, yeah, there was this exercise um, that by all accounts actually appears to have been a pre-planned exercise. The timing just isn't great. Um, and obviously, you know, we we harp about freedom of navigation on this podcast all the time. So obviously the Chinese Navy has every right to, you know, enter the Indian Ocean to uh, conduct some exercise. I mean, I think the one of um, the sources, uh, defense sources that spoke to Times of India, I think, said that, you know, India can't say anything about Chinese Navy ships. 3,500 kilometers away from the Maldives. I mean, the Indian Ocean is the third largest ocean on, on the planet. Um, so certainly, um, if the Chinese Navy enters, it's not necessarily sending a signal. And, you know, signaling is this very tricky thing. I mean, it's, it's often, um, there's a ton of confirmation bias at work. If you're looking for a, an assertive signal, you will find it. Um, a military exercise in, you know, off the coast of Indonesia um, is not, you know, what I think would send a message to New Delhi that China is ready to block any Indian attempt at, at intervention. Um, of course, you know, things could change and maybe, uh, you know, there are some conversations that we don't know about between the Maldivians and the Chinese that could lead to some kind of um, arrangement um, by, um, you know, the People's Liberation Army conducting patrols around the Maldives. Uh, that kind of thing, I think, would really get to get to India. But um, but yeah, this whole Chinese uh, exercise thing was, I think, getting a little bit blown up um, in uh, in certain sectors of the strategic community in India. Um, I think it just turned out to be a little bit of a nothing burger. Yep, absolutely. And I, I do think, you know, it's also important to emphasize, you know, to listeners that the idea of the People's Liberation Army Navy uh, in the Indian Ocean is something that uh, is really a new normal. I mean, we've you know the regularization of Chinese presence there is a reality that India and other countries have increasingly had to accept. In in a similar way in which India is is playing more and more in the South China Sea and some parts of Chinese neighborhood as well. So this is something that's 
part of a broader trend that's already ongoing rather than an isolated event. Right, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, the um, Indian strategists have been very used to seeing Chinese naval assets in the Indian Ocean. I mean, yes, I mean, you know, they, uh, you know, there are regular freakouts in, in in New Delhi when a Chinese submarine pulls up in Colombo or something like that. Uh, you know, it, it, I think, you know, serves as a wake-up call of sorts that India needs to ensure that its strategic footprint in the Indian Ocean remains um, remain strong. And, you know, there is this refrain between India and China where China is determined to not let the Indian Ocean become India's ocean. And certain sectors of the community in, in New Delhi, you know, would prefer for India to maintain strategic primacy in the Indian Ocean. But obviously, you don't get primacy without laying out the assets. And the Chinese have been able to do that at a much greater rate than the Indians are able to, uh, have been able to keep up with. Yep, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So should we um, should we talk a bit about the uh, the broader geopolitical context uh, in the Indian Ocean. Um, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, so, you know, um, so Narendra Modi was recently uh, in Oman. Um, and Oman is not a country that comes up on this podcast quite often, pr primarily because it's not in Asia, but it is certainly on uh, on the uh, Indian Ocean. And um, India signed an agreement with Oman to um, develop a, um, a military site at um, the port of Dukum, which is located on the southern coast of Oman, um, overlooking the Arabian Sea. It's, uh, it's a strategically located port facility. Um, and, you know, we were talking about this idea of a string of pearls. India has been trying to expand its own network of bases. But Prashant, I think what's what's quite interesting um, to look at now is, is the geometry in the Indian Ocean of just a variety of, um, of facilities. Uh, so, you know, on one hand, we have the Chinese facilities that we've already talked about a little bit. But then on the other hand, you know, I mean, we've been talking a lot about the renewed quadrilateral um, after the naval chiefs met in New Delhi in January, and uh, this whole idea of the Indo-Pacific strategy gaining currency in Canberra, Tokyo, Washington, and New Delhi. So there's this idea of now a sort of, you know, concert of democracies. Again, we don't know. This isn't an alliance, um, but... Um, you know, I think they can. Um, this grouping of states can tell you what it stands for uh, in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, which is um, freedom of navigation, open sea lanes, rule of law, peaceful resolution of disputes, um, all that jazz. Uh, but when you look at the Indian Ocean, you know, you see a site like Dukum, you look at the Indian facility at Chabahar in Iran, um, you look at uh, Assumption Island in the Seychelles, which is uh, where India is actually um, building a, a a minor naval facility. Um, it was talked up a little bit. The uh, the Seychelles law people have um, politics changed there, so I think they have maintained a degree of sovereignty over that facility that doesn't quite give India free reign. Um, Aga Lega in Mauritius, um, and of course the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, a sovereign part of India, um, incredibly well located right next to the mouth of the Malacca Strait. And then, you know, let's talk about the other members of the Quad. Obviously, the, you have the U.S. Navy with its logistics um, a naval facility at, uh, at Diego Garcia, a uh, British possession. And with the logistics exchange memorandum of agreement concluded with the United States in 2016 between the U.S. and India, uh, both countries can have reciprocal access to each other's facilities. Um, and then Australia is planning on improving the Cocos Islands and the, south, and the southeastern Indian Ocean, uh, potentially to support um, P-8 Poseidon operations for um, anti-submarine warfare, um, maritime domain awareness operations in the in the wider Indian Ocean region. So when you when you put all of this together, you start to see a a pretty favorable network for these kind of like-minded countries in the Indian Ocean. And as far as this. Indo-Pacific strategy goes. I mean, if this, uh, if the rubber is to really hit the road on uh, on these countries, sort of serving as as a um, you know patrolling the commons, making sure that um, the sea lanes do remain secure, that China is enable to monopolize or capitalize on um, instability in the region, 
uh, for for whatever purposes. I mean, when you start to see this network of facilities around the region, you start to you know feel like there is something here. Um, but obviously, I think you know there are a lot of question marks again about how all of this is converted into um, into something more real than just a network of disparate ports. I mean, right now it's all very. It looks pretty on a map. You can draw some lines, put it together, and it looks nice. But as far as the oper- operationalization of anything goes, we're still in a very primordial phase. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I mean, I think that that's a really good uh, cautionary note. Um, I, I I do think you you can very easily, um, as you said, map these things out and see the linkages there. And and these some of these uh, facilities, um, you know, bases, whatever you want to call them, logistics agreements, um, you know, they really are important because they allow they facilitate uh, maintenance for for vessels. They allow places for aircraft, for example. To uh, potentially refuel, and, and and that's really important. But you do also need the supporting infrastructure, uh, the attendant aerial and naval capabilities to make use of these basing facilities. And we've talked, you know, previously um, in podcasts before about in, you know the limits of India's uh, military modernization, um, and also really the the fact that when we're talking about the revival of uh, Asia's quad, um, the fact that you you do have to uh, acknowledge the fact that there isn't really a, a, uh, that much of a perfect alignment of strategic priorities um, that affects long-term strategic planning, right? So you do have those limitations. That being said, I mean, I, I do agree. I mean, this uh, agreement that, that India struck um, is significant. It's something that um, India and Oman have already been uh, talking about increasing their defense cooperation, right? They've, they've been talking about maritime security cooperation, Coast Guard cooperation. Um, but Tukum really is a, a significant strategic area. I mean, we don't know, obviously, um, all the information about the agreements that were struck, but even the, the, the public versions and statements that came out suggested uh, significant uh, alignment there. Mm-hmm. I mean, one other, I guess, cautionary note I, I would point out is as we're, we're linking these various facilities together um, you you correctly mentioned that uh, all these facilities are not necessarily equal right some of these are logistics agreements that India has reached with for example the United States with Singapore uh, last year they reached one they reached one with France to open up access to facilities others like you know the Andaman and Nicobar Islands is, is a command that the Indian military has set up that manages some of uh, India's defense activities. So it, the, these things, when you when you combine them together, it's important to recognize that there are differences between them. They can't really be combined in perfection. And some of these other facilities, including Dukum, they've been open to other countries as well, not just India, right? Mm-hmm. So so Dukum was open to the UK uh, last year, for example. And these countries, um, the, they. They benefit strategically and sometimes also economically from opening these port facilities. So if the Chinese and other countries that are beyond this quadrilateral network come in and they offer a better deal, there's no telling whether these countries will put those considerations above strategic considerations that are of concern to India and the United States and Australia. So that's the other cautionary note I think we should keep in mind because, you know, ultimately geography is is not destiny, right? Absolutely. No, I think I think that's a really good note to end on. And actually, you know, just on, on Dukum, what's funny is that, you know, there's a massive special economic zone there. And obviously there's a ton of Ch- Chinese capital swimming around there. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, yep. it is, I mean, the, the Omanis are very much open to 
doing business with both India and China. Um, and, you know, Djibouti has a very similar model. I mean, you have the Chinese base right next to a U.S. base and a Japanese base. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, all of these countries, you know, can can play both sides. And, and, you know, as long as the geopolitics in the Indian Ocean remains as hot as it has been, um, I think they'll um, they'll find more ways to have a range of agreements with both India and China. All right, Prashant, uh, we'll, we'll probably come back to the Indian Ocean soon enough, uh, but thanks for joining me today. Yeah, good to be with you. Great. And uh, for listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. And if you have been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't left us a review, please do so on either iTunes or Google Play. It really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.